Father, we pray as we do throughout this service because we need your help. And we need your Spirit's, right, your spirit's help right now in order that we hear from you. And we need to hear from you in order to trust in Jesus, live like Jesus, and one day see Jesus. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Well, don't raise your hand, but did anyone come here today without any problems? We often come to church looking like everything's okay. And yet the reality is that many of us have a lot of trouble just getting here. There might be trouble at home or trouble at work. Or maybe we're here this morning worried about the trouble ahead. Life is full of all kinds of challenges. And sometimes we can't overcome them without help. Do you need help? Now, we might say, we all need help. But depending on what it is, we might not want to admit it or ask for it. And we certainly don't want to be told, you need help. But do you? Do you need help this morning? And do you know where to look for that help? That's an important part of finding it. And as we think about this, it's important to know that one of the most challenging aspects of the Bible's message about Jesus is that it tells us we need help. And it tells us that where we think we don't need help. And that in our problem, we're unable to help ourselves. Do you sense your need for God's help? Do you know what exactly that is? Well, sometimes God uses general life problems to show us of our deeper spiritual problems that we're blind to. He uses the general problems of this world, the problems that we face, to show us of our desperate need of Him regarding a deeper problem. In our passage today, Jesus is providing some practical help to his disciples, but the help is meant to clarify just how great the help is that Christ came to provide. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find that on page 946. 946, if you're new to the Bible, the large bold numbers are the chapters. The smaller numbers are the verses. And this morning we're looking at chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. For context, in chapter 1, John the Baptist and his disciples all testify that Jesus is the Messiah. That's God's deliverer and king. Then in chapters 2 through 4, Jesus is presented as being able to bring the blessings of God's kingdom into this world. And all who believe in him can enter into that kingdom and enjoy eternal life. Chapter 5 starts dealing with the issues related to Jesus being the Messiah, but also to being equal with God 
And for that reason, many people oppose Jesus. And yet, Jesus argues that what he's doing in his ministry is what the Father is still doing. In fact, we saw last week that the Father himself testifies that Jesus is the Messiah through the works that Jesus is doing. And the Father also testifies about Jesus in the law of Moses, in the scriptures. Jesus is the one that Moses said would come. And in our passage today, Jesus looks a lot like Moses. And the miracles he does here are meant to help people see what kind of helper or savior, deliverer, that Jesus really is. And so to help us think deeply about our own spiritual problem and the kind of savior that Jesus is, we're going to focus on these two miracles and the problems that people faced on the surface. Because in the rest of chapter 6, Jesus will use that to drive us deeper. So this morning, here's what we need to know. If you're taking notes. If Jesus is with you, there is no problem. I would love for us to just be able to repeat that throughout the rest of our week and life. If Jesus is with you, there is no problem. Now to be clear, life is full of circumstances that are out of our control. And so yes, we all have real problems. They're real. But even then, if Jesus is with you, there isn't really a problem. He's God. He's our deliverer. So in response to whatever that problem is, especially though in regards to your greatest problem, we ought to look to Jesus and trust him. And in our text today, that looks like doing two things so that he can do his thing. First, sit down. This is verses 1 through 15. Just sit down. Second, calm down. This is verses 16 through 21. Sit down, calm down, or just come up with a a spin on David's words from Psalm 46, right? Be still and know that I'm God. Be still and know that I'm God. Just sit down, calm down, I got this. That's what Jesus is saying, right? So first, sit down. Look at verse 1. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. So here's the setting. Jesus has been doing ministry for a while now. We don't know how long, but based on what the other gospel writers say, at this point, John the Baptist has died and Jesus has gained thousands of followers. Because, verse 2, they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. John, again, refers to miracles as signs because they have a purpose. They're meant to lead people to Jesus. They're recorded for us so that we might believe in him. But what that means is that the miracles themselves aren't the point. That's key for chapter 6. People don't really get Jesus because they're not looking beyond the signs. They're just staying on the surface level. And the surface problems. They want help from him. And they see the miracles providing that help. But he intends for them to understand more about him. And just like Moses went up a mountain to receive God's law and then gives it to his people, so Jesus has gone up a mountain, which is more like a hill to us and good for teaching. 
Jesus goes up there, he sits down to teach his disciples. And according to the other gospel writers, Jesus taught for a long time. So this huge crowd of people have grown hungry. And that brings us to verse 4. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where can we buy bread so these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. Now the timing of the Passover will become more important as we get into the rest of chapter 6, because it will further explain why Jesus performs this miracle. But for now, it may also explain why there's such a huge crowd following him. And when he looks up in verse 5 and sees this crowd pressing in on him, he asks Philip, where will we buy bread so these people can eat? Now you can see in that question, again, what the other gospel writers tell us. At no point could people take a break from this sort of Jesus conference that is going on and head to the food court to get something to eat. They're in the wilderness, on a mountain. Which sounds a lot like Israel when they followed Moses in the wilderness. And interestingly enough, in Numbers 11, chapter, or chapter 11, verse 13, Moses asks God, where can I get meat for all these people? Because the people were complaining about food. And that was a huge problem for Moses. On the surface, it's a problem for Jesus too. We don't know if these people are complaining, but they're hungry. And Jesus sees them, which shows you that God cares about our physical needs. That he, he notices our trouble. Whatever problem you may have thought of at the beginning of the sermon, God sees that. And he's a God of compassion. I hope you know that this morning, especially if the presence of your problems often makes you doubt God's love for you. Or doubt that he's with you and cares. Little statements like this by Jesus help us see that God wants us to talk to him about our problems. He wants us to invite us in to what we're going through and let him prove faithful. And for that reason, it's good to ask others to also pray with you in those things. Let them see and testify to God's faithfulness with you. Now, in some ways, that's what Jesus is doing for his disciples. He sees the problem right there on the mountain. There's a huge, hungry crowd, which can create even bigger problems. But there's nowhere close they can go buy food. We know from Matthew that it's late in the day. And so the question is, is what are they going to do? That's when Jesus turns to Philip and asks the question. But verse 6 He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Jesus is about to do a sign, and so he turns to Philip to test him. Why? Why, Philip? Why this test? Well, remember back in chapter 1, verse 45, Philip finds Nathanael and says, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. Philip is the first one to identify Jesus as the prophet that Moses wrote about. And chapter 5 ends with Jesus making the same claim about himself. And here we are at this scene. 
A crowd of people following a prophet in the wilderness at a mountain. And if you jumped ahead to verse 14, you can see that everybody else recognizes what this sign is about. They say, this truly is the prophet Moses said would come. Meaning, Jesus it looks a lot like Moses, and so he says to Philip, you believe that, right? You already said that. Well, let's see if you really understand. What should we do? And he tells, basically, he's charging them to find food for people to eat. And that should remind us of Jesus' ministry in Samaria back in chapter 4. It's all context. At that point, when people had gone into town, the disciples had gone into town to buy food to eat, Jesus hung around and he said, I have food that you don't know about. My food is to do the will of my Father. And then Jesus teaches them about the primacy of preaching the gospel over physical needs and bringing in a harvest of people. So Jesus knows what he's about to do. But contextually, it seems like he would have been pleased to hear Philip say, you are feeding them, Lord. Or something close to that, like teach them to follow you, Lord. Teach them that you are the one Moses talked about and provide them with real food. Regardless, it becomes clear at the end of this miracle that Jesus is still trying to help his disciples understand the true nature of his ministry. The spiritual need is the greater need. Salvation in Christ is the greater issue. Jesus is a deliverer, rescuer, like Moses. But Philip is just as short-sighted as he was back in chapter 4. He's thinking purely in physical terms, as if the new Moses, who has already turned water into wine and raised the dead, can't provide food in the wilderness like God did through the old Moses. Verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. So it's a huge problem in Philip's mind. About eight months worth of salary in that day won't give everybody enough to just get a bite to eat. So Andrew steps up to the plate in verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Now, it doesn't look like Andrew understands much more than Philip. But regardless of what Andrew's thinking and what level of unbelief might be there, I like what he's doing when it comes to the problem. Because it's a little ridiculous, right? Why even bother bringing this boy with this small meal With a huge crowd. Surely Andrew doesn't think we can just all split this. What he's doing though is he's putting it on Jesus to do something about it. He brings this little boy to Jesus and says, look, this is all we've got. And now Jesus must respond. That's a good thing. That's a good example in our problems. Just bring it to Jesus and put it on God to be faithful according to his word. That's what we want to do with all of life's problems, but especially our sin. That's where we are beyond helpless. We have earned God's wrathful judgment 
And once we see that problem, like the wrath of God coming against us, once we see that great problem, there's nowhere to turn but Jesus. So if you can turn to him for any problem, if you've ever said or even accidentally prayed, God, I could use your help with this, then how much more should you completely rely on him for help when it comes to eternal life? You've rebelled against a holy God. The only thing that you and I can do is trust him for grace. Okay, our, our little loaves of righteousness can't do anything to satisfy the wrath of God. We truly die without Christ. But with him, there's no problem. Not if we put our faith in him. Because he came to provide the perfect life we need on our behalf. And to show us this, Jesus is more than willing to deal with the surface level food problem, especially around the time of Passover. Therefore, Jesus tells everyone, just sit down. Let me solve it. In verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. Just sit down. That's all the crowd has to do. John numbers the men because that's the custom of the day, but that means it's at least double that. And the fact that there's plenty of grass to sit on is convenient, but it's also a small detail in the text that only an eyewitness probably includes as they recount the story. And what's interesting to me is that the only time that there would have been plenty of grass like this is around Passover during the spring season, which is when this occurs. Um, Just a little mark of authenticity there, but... But after they sit down, Jesus gives thanks. And John uses the exact wording that Jesus will use at the Last Supper when he's with his disciples about to go to the cross. Which we'll see in the rest of chapter 6 is hugely important to who Jesus is. But after giving thanks, he distributes the bread and fish to those who were seated. Verse 11, as much as they wanted. You see the miracle? Verse 7, we can't provide enough for everybody to have a little. Verse 11, as much as they wanted. If Jesus is with you, there is no problem. In fact, the problem is more than solved here, right? Jesus doesn't just feed them sufficiently, but abundantly. The disciples are going home with leftovers. Jesus can take care of all our problems and more. He's an endless resource for everything we need. Able to do even more than we need. Remember that when you pray for his help. Remember that when you think about this life. What you deserve versus what he gives. But we also can't remember, we can't miss the real significance of this excess. It's no accident that Jesus provides enough to fill 12 baskets. 
the same number representing the tribes of Israel who were fed bread from heaven when Moses led them through the wilderness. Jesus wants us to see this. He, he commands, commands them to gather it up. He wants them to see the significance of this event. So just notice the sovereignty of God there. Right? God's sovereignty is one of the most practical doctrines we have, especially when it comes to the problems that we face. God is in control of all the details. In this case, he's sovereign over the people's eyes and appetites so that out of this huge crowd, everyone takes just the right amount to be satisfied and to have 12 baskets left over. And when you're going through it, know that right where you're at, Jesus is with you, sovereign over every detail that seems like a problem. And he knows what he's doing. So, even though, yes, there's a problem here, there isn't really a problem. Now, the people rightly see all of this as a sign. And they say, verse 14, this truly is the prophet who's to, who is to come into the world. And that's a clear reference to Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses said that God would raise up a prophet like him. And God did raise up other prophets for his people. But Moses always remained unique as a prophet. And because God promised a new covenant for his people in Jeremiah 31, the general expectation of God's people over time was that there would be one prophet like Moses still to come. If there's a new covenant that God has promised, then there needs to be the prophet like Moses who will be the mediator of that new covenant. And right here, Jesus looks a lot like Moses. Just as Moses called manna to descend from heaven, so this new prophet looks to heaven, gives thanks, and provides an abundance of food. So with Jesus, there is no problem. But it's a sign. So clearly, this isn't ultimately about our stomachs or any other earthly need. Jesus is actually going to clarify the next day in chapter 6 that what matters most here is the kind of spiritual food that he is for all those who believe. He's the bread. He's the bread of life. And by feasting on him, we can have life in his kingdom forever. They see the sign, but they don't fully see Jesus. Not yet. Look at verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They see Jesus as the prophet and then quickly merge the idea of him as king, which isn't hard to do based on the Old Testament. Saul was anointed king by Samuel, and at that point, Saul begins to prophesy. King David was seen as a prophet. So, very early in the life of God's people, the role of king and prophet were merged. And that's what they do with Jesus. So, why wouldn't this be a good thing? Jesus is the Messiah. He's God's king. But like Philip, who doesn't fully understand what it means for Jesus to be the prophet Moses wrote about, so too, these people don't really understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. God's deliverer and king. 
And so until his disciples understand what his kingdom is like and how it is that he will rescue God's people, Jesus is regularly slipping away. At times it's because they're purely thinking in terms of worldly deliverance. And so perhaps here, uh, seeing that Jesus is like Moses who delivered God's people out of Egypt, they look to Jesus and say, he's going to deliver us from Rome. Or at the very least, based on what Jesus says in verse 26, it seems like one reason they might want Jesus to be king is because of his worldly provision. I mean, with this king, they have a constant supply of food. You know, no small thing in first century Middle East. But clearly, those worldly solutions aren't what Jesus is primarily about. That's not the kind of king Jesus wants to be ultimately. In other words, the help he just provided isn't the ultimate help he seeks to give. So he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now let's step back from this passage and just think about it again in its context so that we can apply it to ourselves today. The Jews are rightly expecting a deliverer, someone to rescue them. And they were on the right track. But clearly, just like the disciples themselves, this crowd is largely concerned with their physical and immediate needs. Just as the Jewish leaders missed the point of the scriptures in chapter 5, this crowd is missing the point of the signs in Jesus' ministry. Just as the law pointed to Jesus... The deliverance out of Egypt, apparently, points to Jesus. The Exodus journey isn't about a piece of property in the Middle East. It's about Jesus and his deliverance. He's the manna from heaven that provides true life. He's the deliverer from sin that leads us into the real promised land of God's kingdom. And yet, that's not what they're thinking about. It's this world stuff. Listen, clearly, if Jesus is with you, There is no problem. That's a true statement. God can take care of any physical needs you have. Any problem that you have today. I'm happy to tell you, He's sovereign. He can help you. The problem that arose and that disciples felt was a real problem. And it's happening under God's sovereign purposes. Jesus takes care of that. And He can take care of us. And that's something to celebrate. But is that why you follow Jesus? For many professing Christians, I'm afraid it is the reason they follow Jesus. And they might not even see that. For many, it's really all about Jesus giving them a better life right now. And delivering them from all their current problems. And just making life easier. Because that's what a lot of people are looking for. Now, I could be wrong about this. I hope no one takes offense to this. But it seems like to me that my generation and perhaps younger believe that life should be easier than what it is. And so we're passionate about changing all the things that are too hard. Which isn't always a bad thing. But oftentimes it denies reality. So I am getting to the point where I can now testify that the longer that we're in these bodies, life doesn't get easier. 
And all the anti-aging foods and activities and whatever else can't stop that process. And how many people do you know that die without suffering? I mean, isn't death itself a hard process? Sometimes a long one, sometimes short, but, but rarely easy. And have you ever noticed how no one preaches the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel in a nursing home? Like if you just had a bit more faith, life would be better. No one goes to a nursing home to start a ministry about self-help. Or how life will be better if you just believe in yourself. Or if you would just surround yourself with more positive energy. No one does that. And so what does that say about those philosophies? And the power that they have for all of our problems. What does it say about us that we would bank so much of our life on those ideas? Hoping that it will make life better as we head towards old age and death. Christianity, because it's about Jesus, will carry you from the cradle to the grave. Listen, it is true for you right now, today, no matter what you're going through, and it will be true for you in the nursing home, up to your deathbed, and from the grave to glory. The truth about Jesus does that. But here's the struggle for people like us, living in the flesh. We're not really worried about those things, or about that truth. We're not really taking it to heart like we should until we're clearly facing death. In one sense, that's every day, but it's not as clear. And so it's more natural for us to be preoccupied with material needs. We're not as interested in God's spiritual rescue. rescue. We're much more easily excited about a social gospel or a political gospel or a self-actualization gospel. And so it's tempting for churches to concentrate on having ministries and messages that are primarily concerned with this world's problems. Or even miraculous signs that are still more about this world than heaven. Christians are tempted to concentrate on living lives that are more concerned with our social status or worldly success or physical health or simply life experiences. Now, I am not saying that many of those things aren't important. But examine yourself here. How much of your life is about your plans for the future and what you want to do? And how much of it is about problems in the present and things you want to address and fix? What role does Jesus play in that agenda? Would he say to all those things, I can help you, but you're missing the point. That's not what life's about. It's about me. God can meet physical needs. That's what Jesus does for this crowd. But in the overall context, there's a deeper and more profound meaning to this miracle. Jesus is going to lean on it to communicate. He's the bread of life. True life comes from feeding on him spiritually. By faith. 
Our greatest problem and need in this world isn't a physical one, not primarily, but spiritual. And when the spiritual problem is taken care of in Christ, then even in death, our greatest physical problem, there's still no problem. Death has lost its sting because the sting of death is sin. And Jesus died under the wrath of God for our sin. He rose from the dead. So with Jesus, we will pass through death into eternal life with new bodies and a new world. That's what Jesus is about. And so when they try to force Jesus to be their king and this world, he slips away. I wonder how many professing Christians struggle with their faith, wonder where Jesus is, all because of what he could do or doesn't do for them in this world. They don't see Jesus rightly because they don't know who's really with them. But his disciples are about to find out. Which brings us to the second and final and much briefer point. Calm down. (laughs) Calm down. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. After they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board, and at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. Now, it's not clear in the text why Jesus withdrew for so long, but the disciples apparently think it's wise to head back home. Evening has come. That raises a question about why they're leaving Jesus. (laughs) Maybe it's a veiled allusion to God's people abandoning Moses when he went up on the mountain and took so long. They said, we don't know what happened to Moses. Let's worship this calf. You know, they, they went back to Egypt, so to speak. But it's probably safe to say that these disciples are a bit discouraged or at least confused at this point. Jesus is the Messiah, but the moment a huge crowd wants to make him king, he slips away. And he hasn't come back. That's the context for these foreboding words in verses 17 and 18. They've started across the sea and darkness has set in. The sea in ancient thought is a place of chaos. In Hebrew poetry, the sea represents that which is ominous or destructive. And the Sea of Galilee sits 600 feet below sea level and surrounded by this mountainous terrain. So it exists in something like a wind tunnel. And when these winds would blow, the sea could get stirred up without warning with violent storms. That's a terrifying experience for a people who never really developed a, a sea trade. These fishermen don't have the same type of boats or sea skills that would help them navigate rough waters. So imagine being them on the sea at night when suddenly a huge wind or a high wind starts to blow and the waters churn and try to understand their fear and the problem they now face. A storm for them during the day would be bad enough, but out there at night, unable to see the stars or the shore, will they even make it home? 
Well, after struggling for about three or four miles, which puts them in the very middle of the Sea of Galilee, it seems like their worst fears about the sea may be coming true. In verse 19, this frightening figure appears and is coming toward them. And now their fear goes exponential. Just imagine. Through whatever faint light that's out there, you see a figure walking in the midst of breaking waves and whipping wind. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, To me, this is something like that happens in a a horror film or something. You'd be terrified. You're clearly in the presence of something other. Whatever that is coming towards us, it's not human. That's not comforting. And we can see in the text in 21, they were unwilling to let this figure come on board as it's approaching them. They are terrified. But then Jesus calls out to them and says, It is I. Do not be afraid. Literally, he says, I am. Which is the name for God. I am. Don't be afraid. Now, one of the most famous events in the Old Testament is when Moses is on a mountain and sees a bush on fire. And from the bush, God speaks and calls Moses to go back to Egypt to deliver his people. He says to Moses, you're going to be my people's rescuer. I'm going to use you to deliver them from bondage in Egypt. To which Moses says, who am I? To deliver Israel from Egypt. And God says, I will be with you. To which Moses replies, but if I go and tell them that the God of their ancestors sent me, and they ask what his name is, what should I tell them? And God responds, I am who I am. Tell them, I am sent you. And as Moses cowers in fear, giving God every excuse for why he can't go to Egypt, God's response to that fear every time is, I am with you. God's presence guaranteed that Pharaoh and all the Egyptians and all the Israelites would know that he alone is God and he alone delivers his people. Well, the prophet Isaiah picks up on this and he uses the I am saying To emphasize God's sovereignty over history. God's incomparability. To say, there is no other God. In John, he uses the I am sayings to connect Jesus to being the Messiah. And most of the time, Jesus uses the I am saying to help his disciples understand his role as the Messiah. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the bread of life. But here, in the midst of their discouragement and great fear, he simply says, I am. So this new Moses is also the one who revealed himself to Moses. I am. Jesus is God. Many times it must have been hard to wrap their minds around this person they've been following. But on this occasion, Jesus is clearly divine. Job chapter 9 verse 8, only God can walk on the sea. 
Jesus reveals himself as sovereign over nature. And when they hear his voice and his command, they're willing at that point to take him on the boat. And immediately they're at the shore. The message here is that fear is banished in the presence of Jesus. They know who's with them. And that changes their situation. Now, in this case, we don't hear about the winds dying down. We don't hear that suddenly the sun came out. Or that the waves calmed down. But they calmed down. They're no longer afraid. They let them in the boat, and when they do, they miraculously find themselves at their destination. Even in the midst of darkness and chaos, there's no reason to fear since Jesus is with them. Now, this was a historical event, but it's also a great illustration for the Christian life. Church, it's a dangerous journey. Life as a Christian, life in this world, is full of suffering and circumstances we can't control. And when Christ comes into our our lives, it's not like all our problems disappear. Winds still blow, the waves still rage. But Jesus gets us through the darkness. He carries us through the storm. And if he's with us, we will certainly reach our destination. There's going to be times in your life that are a lot like the disciples' experience in the boat. Family struggles, work struggles, health struggles, social and political struggles. And they can all come together like waves crashing against one another in a stormy sea. And, And that can be life. Some of you might feel like, man, that's a storm I've been in for years. It can make life scary, tiring, chaotic. And it's not just life in general, but even in our service to Christ that we can find life to be like this. You know, just think about it here. The, the whole reason they find themselves in this particular situation is because they follow Jesus. And they don't know what happened to him. He's off praying. So they're beginning to think it's better for us to just go back home. And so we might think, God, I'm trying to serve you. And now life is looking pretty hard and chaotic. And the whole reason I'm suffering right now is because I follow Jesus. What do you do? Adoniram Judson lost his first wife. And his first son, because he went to the jungle to preach Christ. And he would lose another wife and more children because he continued to serve Christ. You might lose a reputation or a friend. You might lose sleep because of your, the burden that you carry for your brothers and sisters here who are suffering. Or you might suffer mentally and emotionally because coveting with other believers in Christ inevitably leads to being sinned against or needing to work through conflict or needing to sacrifice your own time and resources where you don't feel like you have that much to give. And all of that is part of the sort of frothing waves in a world that's often just dark. But calm down. Jesus is with you and he's God. I mean, it's interesting. The disciples are initially afraid by this figure coming towards them. And so they, though they could not know it, they were more afraid of their Savior than the storm. 
Which is silly, right? When you say it like that. But sometimes that's what we do with the costs of following Jesus. We think the, the world is where all of our trouble is, but then in coming to Jesus for salvation, we think, oh no, the costs are too great. Don't be afraid. Even when the costs are raging, raging, Jesus says to us what God says to Moses. I am with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. John Newton, the the famous pastor and hymn writer of Amazing Grace, once wrote to a younger minister in a trial. And he said this. A believer, like a sailor, is not to be surprised if the wind changes, but to learn the art of suiting himself to all winds for the time. And though many a poor sailor is shipwrecked, the poor believer shall gain his port. Oh, it is good sailing with an infallible pilot at the helm who has the wind and weather at his command. Church, we have an infallible pilot. And that's good news because one of the famous images that the church has always used for itself based on passages like this is the image of a boat. And it's a good one. Here we have a small handful of people seemingly alone, separated from the way the rest of the world is living, being tossed by waves of secularism, blown by winds of doubt, out of touch with the one person who told them, get in the boat. And there's no destination in clear sight. Surrounded by darkness. That is the church's state. What's her future? It is, without a doubt, her final destination. Because Jesus is the risen Lord. And through faith in him, we are united to him. And so, because Jesus is with us today, we will be with him forevermore. Just be still and know that Jesus is God. Let's pray. God, we do praise you for your help. We praise you for your help in this life, but we especially praise you for the help that you give in our sin. For the sacrifice that you've provided in Jesus Christ. And God, we pray that you would help us to rely completely on him. And because we have salvation. God, we pray that you would help us walk through this life with great confidence that you are with us and that it will be good. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.